Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by my colleague, Amanda Carpenter. Good morning, Amanda. How are you? Hey, Charlie. I'm good. How about you? Well, this is one of those days when um, I really want to wallow in a couple of stories. We won't do it for the whole podcast, but I have to say that I am reading absolutely everything I can get my hands on about what happened with the Russian warship, the Moskva. This was the warship that told the Ukrainian soldiers on Snake Island that they had to surrender. And they said, you know, fuck you, um, Russian warship. So the Ukrainians basically have effed the Russian warship. I mean, I just find it amazing. I mean, look, it, you know, from, from a symbolic propaganda point of view, it's obviously huge. This is the most important naval vessel that the Russians have in the, in the Black Sea. So it's a huge victory for Ukraine, a huge embarrassment for the Russians. But it's not just symbolic. I mean, this actually... It does have real military significance. If if the Ukrainians really now do have these anti-ship missiles, they, th- then there's no ship that the Russians have right now in the Black Sea that is safe if it comes anywhere close to the Ukrainian border. So that strikes me as kind of a game changer. It's absolutely epic. And I am just stunned with their army's ability to do all this I mean, remember, they weren't training for long. They weren't waiting for a war to happen. No. I mean, they just jumped into action, and they're still doing all this without the full support from the Western world. It is unbelievable. And, you know, I I applaud them, but at the same time, I'm so angry because we should be doing so much more than just saying, oh, it's a genocide. I mean— Back them up. Well, I'm 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 glad that at least uh, Joe Biden is saying it's it's genocide, and and he appears to be moving to give them more weapons. Although, you know, it, it feels like extracting teeth in in many ways. Like, okay, we really need these offensive weapons. Well, okay, maybe we'll give you this, maybe we'll give you that. Germany's completely useless, but you know, if you just step back for a moment, it is just amazing to me how completely. Vladimir Putin has miscalculated just about everything. I know this is almost like a cliche now that he's done this, but when when you look at to sort of run down his position, I mean, what what he's accomplished that you now have Finland and Sweden uh, thinking of you know poised to join NATO when that was the remember that was the entire reason to invade Ukraine. You know that we, we had to stop you. We had to stop this uh, this this growth of uh, you know this this creeping NATO toward our borders. So got the flagship sunk. I'm, I'm reading from Tom Nichols' tweet from last night. A flagship sunk, tens of thousands of Russians killed in action and wounded in action. Pariah status, global humiliation. NATO about to be 32 countries, including Sweden and Finland. An amazing amount of self-inflicted damage in a record amount of time. Brilliant. Yeah, it's, a, Brilliant. it's incredible. But, you know, just thinking about your conversation yesterday with Ruth. Yeah. The more successful the Ukrainians are, the more desperate and erratic Putin is likely to become. And so this kind of gets back to 
in my guilt as an American, because I just think of how decadent it is that we are debating over how valuable it is whether Joe Biden says the word genocide or not. And, it, and I can have that conversation. It does matter. Words do matter. But they need more than words right now, right? Like, he doesn't need a ride. He needs ammo. Send the what, ammo. Let's what, get this done. And I think that the fact that they now have uh, at least some of these anti uh, these uh, these anti ship weapons that strikes me as as a positive thing. So I'm I'm willing to give people a little bit of credit for the moment. Okay, so now there's there's reports that no, the Charlie, States, I will say you're right. Yeah, I don't want to yeah. be no, a no, Debbie no. Downer. It's important to acknowledge possible turning points and at I, every step. And I want to be a little bit positive today because I've mm -hmm. been I've been the negative one. You know, you know that <laughs> then you invited said, me here. Well, I said you know <laughs> that you know people say well we're giving them a lot. Well. What does that mean? I mean? You know, is a lot enough? And the Ukrainians, who appear to know a bit more about this war than we do, were saying that they hadn't gotten enough. I think at this point, can we just acknowledge that the Ukrainians are actually the world's best experts on what they need to fight and kill Russians? I've just just a thought. Okay, yeah, so and we need to be prepared to support them yeah. in an offensive posture not just a defensive one, which is easy to do. Exactly. Okay, so Politico is reporting U.S. ways sending top-level official to meet Zelensky in Ukraine. Two U.S. officials told Politico, the Biden administration is currently discussing sending this high-level official to Kiev to show further support for Ukraine, since I guess we've been a little bit shamed by Boris Johnson going there, uh, the leaders of the EU going there, some of the Baltic uh, presidents uh, going actually to Ukraine. So... I don't know, in a, in a moment of a, sort of an impulsive moment without like a great deal of deep thought, I tweeted out, Joe Biden should go. What do you think? I think the symbolic gesture was made by the other leaders and it would be not the greatest use of resources at this moment in time. Why? And, unless there's a compelling reason. I mean, because they need- they need Wouldn't be prudent? I'm just trying to think about what, what that actually does to move the ball forward. I mean, the best way that we as Americans with the greatest military in the world can show our support is with our military backing, right? Yeah, right, right. But, but and I'm not still... sure that sending Joe Biden, I mean, I'm, I'm not against it. I just don't see what exactly it does, given that, you know, other leaders have taken their walk in the park. I'm, I'm yeah, open to be convinced. They're, they're not other leaders. I mean, they're, uh, they are other leaders. This is the president of the United States. It would be dramatic. I mean, it would be, you want to talk about theater. And look, I, I know there are people who are saying, you know, what a crazy idea it is to send the president of the United States into a war zone. We have done this in the past. Remember when George W. Bush, I think even, it didn't even Trump go into Afghanistan or Iraq during the war? One of the I mean, other. I, I feel like they all have at some yeah. point in time. They all went for like, you know, delivered turkeys or something like that. The problem, of course, is it's hard to get in and out of Kiev. You have to go overland. This is not one where you just take Air Force One and, and you land, you know, at Kiev International Airport. You know, and the wheels down and then, you know, do a couple of, you know, you know, grip and grin, you know, photo ops and then, you know, wheels up. Not quite yeah, that simple, I'm worried you know? it could come off as sort of a cheap stunt. Uh, but see, it's not yeah. a okay. It's a stunt. I'm not there. I'm not there. Okay, I know. I know. I know. It's it's <laughs> you're more you're no you God, wouldn't be prudent. Wouldn't be prudent. But it is. <laughs> well, a stunt. Not, it's not a matter of prudence. It's just is that the best use of our American resources? And I'm not. I'm not sure it is. Okay. So what's he doing right now? What 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 is Joe Biden spending his day doing right now? He's giving a speech about. 
so, I could fill in the blank here. Something nobody gives a shit about. So I'm just yeah, I don't uh, even know. Uh, so I'm so what other high level official? Okay, I, Tony Blinken, huh? Kamala Harris, maybe I don't know. It's I, I, okay. So that that okay. It is a stunt. I agree. It's a stunt and it's a gimmick, but it is not a cheap stunt because there's real risk involved. That that's what makes it uh, separate from that. Okay, so. Did you read that story out of the San Francisco Chronicle about Dianne Feinstein? I sure did. And I was shocked at how it kept going and going and going and, and going. going. I mean, that reporter has been keeping a file for a long time. This is the story for people who don't know what we're talking about here. Settle this is, in. This is a, a really deep dive uh, by political reporters who report that colleagues worry that Dianne Feinstein, the, the senior senator from California, is now mentally unfit to serve. And they quote four U.S. senators, including three Democrats, as well as former staffers and aides, as saying she's not all there anymore. She's 88. And, you know, this is one of those things where you don't like to see somebody who has had this kind of a career go out this way. But the fact is the story appears for a reason that people have decided yeah. we we have to do something about this. Uh, this is this is going to end badly. It's going to end badly, especially when you have a United States Senate that is at least temporarily 50-50. If one of those 50 is close to non-compost mentis, that is a real problem. But this is kind of the geriatric problem that we have in our politics. I mean, let's be honest about it. You know, we have mm-hmm. we have an awful lot of really, really old folks. In the, yeah, I remember you know, stories like this when Thad Cochran was reaching oh, near the end that? of his yeah. career, right? People are kind of saying this is sort of a sexist article. There's lots of other old men who have served with memory problems, which is true. But this article is devastating uh, in the fact that you have senators, not by name, but on record saying they essentially have to reintroduce themselves to her in the hallway because she doesn't always remember who they are. And this this particular anecdote stood out. It said, Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer had to tell Feinstein more than once that she needed to give up the Judiciary Committee leadership post because he, she didn't remember he had already told her. Like, that's that's bad. This is right? bad. Look, and, and again, you, you want to be compassionate for somebody. I mean, a lot of us, you know, had parents or grandparents who were this age, and you want to treat them with, with compassion and uh, with understanding, but... We're talking about a United States. Let me tell you the secret. I don't know. It's not really a secret, but the Senate is the world's greatest retirement home. Oh, let's be real about this. Where else do you have staff catering to your every need, picking you up, getting you meals, preparing your documents, setting you up for meetings? I mean, especially because she's lived this life for so long, it's probably unimaginable to throw her out of it. Right. I mean, she's had caretakers as has many older members of Congress and senators have caretakers in in terms of staffers. And I don't say that to be mean. No, but it no. really is the reality of it. It is. the reality. So so Chuck Grassley from Iowa is only three months younger than her. And uh, he's 88, too. He's held the job for 40 years and he's running for reelection. He's I mean, doing there, pushups. There's, there's some, yeah, but there's, <laughs> One campaign there, of that. There's, OK, Richard Shelby, 87. James yeah. Inhofe, 86. Patrick Leahy is 81. Those three, Shelby, Inhofe, and Pat Leahy, they've served in the Senate for a total of 106 years. You have 23 members of the Senate in their 70s. 
Okay, so uh, wow, uh, the 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 average age of the senators at the beginning of this year was more than sixty four years, the oldest in history. So again, I, I look, I I'm, I'm not saying that we need to have you know age limits, but this this is this is a real problem, and it's really a. Uh, it is a challenge. You know, look, I don't want to, you know, spend too much time on this, but, you know, we, we, every once in a while there's this discussion of why is there not more energy from the Democrats? Why is there not more creativity? <laughs> How do they seem so out of touch? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's because, and I have a lot of admiration for, you know, what Nancy Pelosi has done as a politician, but she's 82 years old. She was born in 1940. The number two Democrat is Steny Hoyer. He is 82 years old. The average age of House leadership among the Democrats is 72. Okay, so at some point that becomes a substantive problem for a political party. Yeah, something just popped into my head. It had to do with an article I read the other day about Ro Khanna, who's the yeah. California congressman. And when he was getting to run, he was telling the story about, I think he went to Pelosi's home or fundraiser or something, seeking her endorsement. And she was pretty frank with him saying she wasn't going to give him the endorsement. But what she told him is that no one gives you power. You have to take it. And if that's the mentality of the senior Democratic leadership, that they are just going to sit there and keep their power until someone takes it from them, I think that explains part of the problem. I think it explains a great deal of the problem. Okay, so you have written some fantastic things recently about what's going on in Pennsylvania. I want to talk about that, what's going on in Georgia as well. Uh, I also want to get your thoughts on Elon Musk wanting to take over Twitter, but let's do all of that after this. This is Charlie Sykes, and I want to tell you about Famous Smoke Shop. A good cigar is a reward. It's a tradition. At Famous Smoke Shop, they know all about it, American-owned and independent. Famous Smoke is your neighborhood cigar shop, no matter where your neighborhood is. As a matter of fact, Famous Smoke Shop was recently named the best place to buy cigars online by both Cool Material and Cigar World. Now in their 83rd year, Famous Smoke continues to offer the authentic cigar shop experience, decades worth of cigar knowledge, a huge selection of premium cigars, and low prices that every cigar enthusiast will love. Famous Smoke Shop offers a huge selection of over a 1,000 brands to choose from. You'll find incredible deals on everyday cigars and highly rated classics, including Romeo, Monte Cristo, Acid, Macanudo, Oliva, and Fuente. Plus, every purchase is backed by their 30-day Famous Freshness Guarantee. So if you want your cigars fresh and delivered fast, it has to be Famous Smoke Shop. I receive my cigars from Famous Smoke Shop, and I love how simple it is to purchase. And when there's a special occasion, I love to be able to go to my humidor and find one of the special cigars. It's spring here in Wisconsin, and I have to tell you, there's nothing nicer than going out on a nice, cool spring evening and lighting up one of these cigars. I don't have to do it on a daily basis, but knowing that they're there, knowing how easy it is to replace them, is one of the things that I really look forward to these days. So here's an exclusive offer for my listeners. To save $20 off your purchase of $100 or more, go to famous-smoke.com. That's famous-smoke.com and use code BULWORK at checkout to save $20 off your purchase of $100 or more. You'll get your favorite cigars delivered direct from their humidor to yours. That's promo code BULWORK for $20 off your purchase at famous-smoke.com. Great cigar deals only at famous-smoke.com. And remember to use promo code BULWORK. 
Okay, I am back with Amanda Carpenter. Uh, so I know this seems like we've heard this story before, like how crazy is the crazy? But you had a piece in the bulwark about what's happening in Pennsylvania. And I feel that almost you could pick any any state at random and just kind of throw a dart at it and go, okay, you think that's crazy? You think Missouri's crazy? Well, what about Arizona? Well, Arizona, you think Arizona's crazy? What about Ohio? <laughs> and you know, Georgia is Herschel Walker. But in Pennsylvania, you made the point because we were, you know, spent a lot, everybody spent a lot of time talking about Dr. Oz and Donald Trump embracing Dr. Oz, you know, one hoaxer uh, embracing uh, you know, a fellow huckster. And yet you point out that that in, in Pennsylvania politics, actually, Dr. Oz sort of leans more normal than some of the people, the other folks, including the likeliest Republican candidate for governor. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, what's what's been sort of interesting about the Pennsylvania midterms is that the entire focus has been on the Senate. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you ask people who's running, they'll say something about John Fetterman and McCormick, and no one is paying attention to the governor's race, which, you know, when it came to 2020, who was the governor of Pennsylvania was pretty darn important. I mean, they had a Democratic governor, which held the line a, a lot of the crazy election rigging attempts. And so I've always had my eye on Pennsylvania. I think last summer I wrote a piece about how the races were becoming a conspiracy kiss-up contest. And so I just wanted to revisit. Conspiracy kiss-up yeah. contest. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so I just wanted to revisit where the candidates were for governor. And even, I, I mean, I was shocked because once you see how that race is shaping up, this guy, Doug Mastriano, who, if you follow the January 6th investigation, State Senate, you recognize right? Yes, state yeah, senator. Yeah, yeah. You would recognize his name. Um, yeah. He bussed people to the Capitol. He was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee because they believe that he participated in the alternate elector scheme. I mean, he he's all over the place demanding ongoing investigations. He's probably the most extreme one in the Pennsylvania State Senate on these issues. Yeah. And I think he has a good chance of winning the primary. I mean, for governor. Yeah, the Republican governor primary. There's essentially two people that are leading the race. It's Lou Barletta, who you may remember, he used to be this hardline immigration stance mm -hmm. guy who is the mayor of Hazleton, Pennsylvania. He went to Congress and then Trump kind of recruited him to run for Senate in 2018. And he got creamed. He got creamed by, by Bob Casey by 13 points. But now he's running for governor. And so in most polls, he sort of has the edge on the race. But he's he's lost statewide already. I mean, he's a loser. Um, and Doug Mastriano is just nipping on his heels by maybe one or two points. Some recent polls show him up three or four points. And so far, Trump has stayed out of the race. Hmm. So the day I wrote that article, weirdly, Trump came out with his anti-endorsement of this other guy, Bill McSwain. U.S. Attorney. Yeah, yeah, because he blamed Bill Barr, the attorney general, because he didn't do more to find, you know, fraudulent votes in the 2020 election. And so last summer, he wrote this letter to Trump seeking his endorsement for this race, saying, you know, essentially, you're the greatest. I was so pleased to serve you. And oh, by the way, I couldn't do anything more to stop you know, stop the steal because Bill Barr wouldn't let me. This is part of the conspiracy kiss-up contest yes. you're describing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so on Monday, the day my article came out saying essentially, like, they're all conspiracists, Trump comes out and says, Bill McSwain will never get my endorsement because he didn't do enough for me to flip the election. 
And so that was the first time Trump really got into that race. And there are some other candidates. Jake Corman is also another one. <laughs> yeah, but, but what what flipped Trump on that? He he went from kind of liking this guy. This guy said, you know, had had ripped Bill Barr. Did he get some new piece of new information that that he came out and is doing a negative endorsement? Do we know what triggered yeah, if that? I had to guess. So Trump's people are all over this Pennsylvania governor's race. Kellyanne Conway is working for this guy named uh, Jake Corman, who is a leader of the state yeah, Senate. Right, right. Doug Mastriano has all the Bannon people, Mike Lindell, uh, Jenna Ellis behind him. Oh, wow. And so it's clear. Everyone wants his endorsement. Everyone is angling for this. And so I think there's just been a lot of people in Trump's world beating the door down to Mar-a-Lago saying, make an endorsement, make an endorsement. And he doesn't want to because, A, Lou Barletta is a loser. I think he knows deep down that Doug Mastriano is a loser. And so his only play was to make an anti-endorsement. That, yeah. That's what I think. And so the hope lives alive for someone like Jake Corman that he might get it. So on that day also that Trump made his anti-endorsement of McSwain, uh, Corman was saying he was going to uh, leave the race. And then later that day, he said he talked to Trump and Trump convinced him to stay in. And so it's just amazing how much control Trump has over this and how he's exercising it and how he's playing all these candidates against each other. And he's really trying to get the most extreme one right. on the election issue. Like that's the only one that matters as it should for him because the governor of Pennsylvania would be in such a powerful, powerful position in 2024. And also another you know, fun fact, in Pennsylvania, you don't elect a secretary of state, the governor appoints one. Wonderful. So everyone should take a minute and think about the implications of a governor, Doug Mastriano, appointing a secretary of state there. And so, you know, I, I don't think he's electable, but hey, you never know. Uh, right. The, you, you the never Democrat know. of the race, Josh Shapiro, you know, is, is a pretty good fit. Uh, he's not, you, you know, crazy progressive when... I think the, I can't remember, is a Baltimore, Philadelphia announced the mask mandates were coming back. He was pushing back against that um, as a Democrat. So I think, I think he's got a pretty good bead on where voters are. But, you know, do you, do you want to risk a Mastriano Shapiro race? I don't eh, I think we're gonna. We being Republicans, well, th this is my question because I have not looked at the polls in, in these states, but given the, the headwinds the Democrats are facing, all of the polls would suggest very strongly this is going to be a big Republican year. Pennsylvania should be obviously gettable for the, the Republicans uh, and raises the question, are they are they going to blow this? Are they are they going to blow the both the Senate race and the governor's race because Trump is demanding the the wooliest of the wooly? Uh, be nominated. I think it's completely possible. Yeah. And this is also, so So, what is the impact of this race if Mastriano actually gets the nomination? Because he is crazy pants. Um, it, it's, yeah. you know, there, there'll, there'll be tons of material. He's always doing these Facebook lives where he's ginning up election fraud issues. He's anti-vax, you know, all the, all the things. And so even if, you know, McCormack, who I guess he wants to be the normal-ish Republican in the race, how, how how does he fare with Doug Mastriano kicking around? How does Dr. Oz fare yeah. with Mastriano kicking around? Because it's not like Mastriano is some wallflower. He's going to be loud. He's going to be doing rallies. It, it's going to be stop the steal on steroids. Okay, so the, the same the same question I think applies to Georgia, where you know Georgia is obviously right on the razor's edge on paper. 
uh, the incumbent Democrat, Ralph Warnock, senator, uh, would be among the most vulnerable. Polls would again suggest that this is a Republican year, and yet Republicans seem poised to nominate the deeply problematic Herschel Walker. So talk to me about, I mean, he's going to win that primary, right? Even Mitch McConnell said, screw it. I wanted a rational Republican, but I'm not going to get a rational Republican. So I'm going to go along with Herschel Walker. How's that playing out for everybody? Oh my gosh. Well, number one, I was so happy you had um, Greg Bluestein on the podcast last week with his book, because the Atlanta General Constitution just does a great job following this race. And so I highly so just following him and also their podcast. Yeah. But I mean, there's so many factors when it comes into this. There's been a lot of reporting this week on Herschel Walker exaggerating his uh, business successes. Apparently, he's claimed in the past that not only he graduated the top 1% of UGA, he didn't graduate. Um, he also has like the largest upholstery business in America, garments. I it, It's pretty crazy. The Daily Beast has been doing some incredible reporting on that. But what I really started to think about last night was how Herschel Walker's life is going to change dramatically. I saw you tweet this. And this was this sort thing. of spurred on the reporting uh, from Greg that senators are holding special policy, like tutoring sessions for Herschel Walker, one-on-one, Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, to try to help him bone up on the issues. That'll work. I, I don't think that's the biggest thing they should be worried about. I mean, I think it's safe to say that Herschel Walker is a somewhat unstable figure given the steady stream of police reports and women accusing him of uh, violent acts like pointing guns at their heads in his yes, head. Yes, right. So, so that's there. But how does he go as a person who is universally loved? Right. Like he walks into a rally. People run up to him, want to take his picture. They want to hug him. They want to touch him. They want to tell him how they worshiped him since he was a kid to being potentially hated by at least half the voters in Georgia. Uh, And then I saw the news that Warnock has like twenty five million dollars in the bank. Very impressive. Yeah, that's a lot of money that you can spend. Let's testing at least. Herschel Walker's reputation in Georgia. So, so, and I don't know how an unstable figure copes with that because well, has he ever mm, been criticized? Has he ever been tested? In this way, yes. That's an interesting question. Now, the other interesting question is what actually matters? I mean, I know the, the people who believe that you know nothing matters, but it does seem that at least to an extent, spousal abuse has mattered. It forced Sean Parnell, the Trump-endorsed candidate, to drop out of the race in Senate. Allegations of spousal abuse seem to be tanking, asterisk there, we don't know yet, Eric Greitens, who is uh, the Trumpist light candidate running in Missouri, which is kind of amazing because, I mean, Eric Greitens has already been disgraced. He was forced to resign as governor because of his conduct, you know, tying a woman up, you know, in the basement, taking her picture. I mean, this guy's total scumball. But he's but up until recently, he was the leading candidate for Senate. So he appears that he's likely to be derailed because of these spousal abuse uh, allegations. What about Herschel Walker? Because he's got a lot of baggage there. And so you just mentioned Ralph Warnock's got a few million dollars that he could dump onto the airways to tell people about this aspect of uh, Herschel Walker's background. So uh, how how is he going to handle that? How will that play? Well, I mean, I guess it's sensitive. I mean, is this a sensitive subject to talk about his mental stability? Because early on in the race, you saw sort of the McConnell people saying, yeah, we can acknowledge it. He had treatment. It's time to move on. But they are keeping him sort of in a bubble. I mean, most of the interviews that he's done have been on extremely friendly 
outlets, you know, sports broadcasters. Uh, there was one that uh, the AJC guys were mentioning in their podcast where he went on it and they didn't even know he's running for Senate. They were just thought they were just talking Perfect. to the football star, right? Yeah, yeah. And so that's how they're sort of testing him. So I, it gets the question, okay, if spousal abuse mattered in these other races, yes. like Parnell and Greitens that you right. mentioned, why doesn't it matter in this race? And it's because for some reason, the Republican establishment, as represented by both Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell, have decided they're just going to push past it. And so I asked myself, why is that the case? And I think there's something sad about this in that they know he's popular. They know he can probably win. They also know he has no policy background. And so they can they can run him. And I and that might be controversial to say, but I think he's being used. Well, obviously he's being used in, in, in this case. Do they also think that there's some kind of a celebrity exemption for this behavior that uh, that Donald Trump, uh, uh, you know, because, you know, I'm 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 a celebrity. When you're a celebrity, you can you know grab women in all kinds of places and do all kinds of things. Do they think that there's kind of an exemption because he is this, this superstar that that it, it'll take down a Sean Parnell or take down an Eric Greitens? But if you're a, if you're like a football player. If you're like this beloved football player, people are going to cut you uh, slack because, I mean, there, there's there's something to that. I mean, you, you've seen the almost infinite capacity of fans uh, to, you know, de de defend and forgive, you know, athletes that have engaged in pretty, you know, horrific uh, behavior. But but but, you know, again, this is part of the problem, isn't it, Amanda? It's, it's like figuring out what are the rules? We used to understand what the rules were in the past. Right. But, you know. How have they evolved? And we're going to find well, out this year, aren't we? Yeah. One thing that I think all political operatives know, but people are uneasy acknowledging, is how much it really does matter. One, to have name ID. Everybody knows that. But also just to be likable. Dr. Oz, right. Trump is right about Dr. Oz. A lot of people liked him. They did tune in to see him every single day. A lot of people like Herschel Walker. And... That goes a long way in politics. And, you know, I sort of think sometimes maybe we should reevaluate re what kind of candidates can win and maybe maybe get people who are more likable, who can or at least show capacity and willingness to learn the issues. And it sort of makes me sad to say that, but that well, that is that is a model. And certainly that would be better than what's happening in Georgia, because it, it is just plain for anybody to see that Herschel Walker is not prepared to take a vote in the United States Senate on an issue on something like going to war, right? Or impeaching <sighs> a president or delivering how we deliver aid to Ukraine or even like student loans. I mean, name the issue, right? And the sad fact is, and I think we should be upfront about this, is that Mitch McConnell sees opportunity here because he can just tell Herschel Walker what to do. Right. And, and, and he'll probably do it. Do it. Oh, yeah. I, th yeah. I, think, I think that that is a safe bet. So, you uh, you think that likability is really important in politics? People like Donald Trump, Charlie. Okay, okay I just asked. I know, hey, I know, I know where you're going. Where, where but they do you think, did. Where, where do you think watch I'm, him on The Apprentice. Yeah, I'm, they like to watch it, even if they didn't like him. They liked watching him. Okay, then, then they like talking about him. There is a, an ability. The ability to hold the public's attention is the biggest commodity you can have in politics. If likability is important in politics, Amanda. Then explain to me Ted Cruz. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, he didn't win the Republican nomination, Charlie. <laughs> Could you feel that wind up coming from like way back here? <laughs> because, but, um, but that's okay. I can go back to my cruise days. The grassroots did like him. He would walk into, you know, any conference and get standing ovations and cheers. I mean, I understand the broad uh, electorate didn't like him, but there were a lot of people that sure did. No, well, I'm, and in I'm, Texas, obviously that's the case. Okay, so something that you and I, I think, uh, disagreed about was uh, uh, hmm. from a, from a few months ago. Um, I was uh, somewhat skeptical when Time Magazine named Elon Musk the person of the year, and you were kind of all in on it. You thought it was okay. Yeah, sure. So, yeah. So, so tell no, me that's about fair assessment. So, e- e- Elon Musk has decided that he wants to be he wants to be Iron Man. <laughs> why not and and why not I, if you i mean i actually haven't seen the iron man movie so i don't know if that's a good or bad thing but if you're a billionaire a you can be be whatever you want to be well he, he wants to own twitter he wa- <laughs> i can think he, of better he, projects well it is interesting he figures you know i mean twitter he you know he, he, and of course this is breaking down along ideological lines because you know the right which had been until like five minutes ago uh, demanding that there be government regulation of it is now saying, well, it's a private company and he can do anything <laughs> he wants with it. And he will restore free speech. But Elon Musk owning Twitter, how should we think about that? Well, OK, I don't know how we should think about it. How do you think about it? I, I think he's just screwing around, number yeah. one. <laughs> and number two, how could Twitter get worse? I mean, what, what, is, what would Elon <laughs> do to Twitter? Oh no, he'd bring back Donald Trump. That's probably going to happen anyway. Edit button. I'm not concerned. <laughs> well, I'm not concerned about it, except that at some point we need to have a real discussion about America's oligarch problem, because we've been talking about all the oligarchs in, in, in Russia, but uh, I think we have a bipartisan problem where we have a handful of uh, you know gazillionaires who, frankly, are and I, and I look. I'm I'm a conservative, free market guy. I'm, I'm you know, been you know very skeptical of class warfare, but at some point we need to acknowledge, with all the talk about democracy and all the threats to democracy, um, the oligarchy is a kind of a big deal here. But, but what threat does Elon Musk pose to Twitter? What what threat does Elon Musk pose to society right now? Because I see mostly improvements. What the bad thing is, he's got a weird personal life and smokes pot on Joe Rogan and post stupid tweets yeah. every once in a while. No, no, I mean, no, no, he no. actually I, is just a person. Well, well, he's a, he's 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 a narcissistic asshole with billions of dollars and which is so which, is, which, which is the American well right, I mean, that is that is the American dream, right? To be a narcissistic asshole with billions of dollars. I guess I'm talking about the 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 disproportionate impact on um our politics, the way it warps everything that happens. Look, you can't tell the story of of the polarization of American politics uh, uh, without telling the story of the of the of the money people and the oligarchs and what they what they have done. I just I pretty much disagree it. with you because no. the candidates who generate the most low dollar donations gen- tend to generate the most broad. No, appeal. no, not that way. I, just, not, I, I don't see. No, okay, I, no. I, I we could revisit this another day, but I don't see the tremendous harm that the so called American oligarchs are posing to society. And if the biggest harm is. Oh, I think you know, the, I think the, what he I might think, do to Twitter. No, no, no I, think I, the, I need something bigger. No, no. I mean, when you think about what the Murdochs have done, what the Mercers have done, um, what people like the Elons have done um, in American politics, um, not necessarily in direct contributions to candidates, but in the way that they have uh, corrupted and distorted, you know, much of the the infrastructure. You know, many of the worst actors are you know out there because they have funders and. 
with that, we have to go. Oh, well, well you got to let me come back another day. All right. So, Amanda Carpenter, thank you for joining us on today's Bulwark podcast. I appreciate it very, very much. You bet. The Bulwark podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.